Strange Dreams, Girlhood, and the Body. Welcome, listeners, to the first episode of Parting Words, a new poetry review. I'm your host, Jeremy Audette, and although this podcast exists in the digital space, I would very much like to begin this series by declaring that I am currently working, and will be for the foreseeable future, on the unceded land of the Abenaki people in Canada. Parting Words is a response to some of the many emerging poetic voices in Canada, and in this series we will highlight poets who, through their words, are contributing in one way or another to the myriad literary movements of the present, and whose works are achievements in and of themselves. In this podcast you will hear poems read by the poets who wrote them, the poets themselves speak about and to those poems, and critical approaches to their writing. I am very excited that our first poet to be featured in this series is Montreal's Annie Gloom. Gloom, she, her, is a poet and a Scorpio currently living on the unceded land of Teotiake, Montreal. She often asks herself the question as to if she is a writer or a woman scorned, considering the themes of her poems. A surrealistic take on girlhood, memory, heartbreak, and the occasional discussion of sardines. Annie is currently pursuing a bachelor's degree at Concordia University in English Literature and Creative Writing with a minor in Interdisciplinary Studies in Sexuality. She is currently the poetry editor at Yoke Literary and previously served as the editing manager for Creative at Graphite Publications. Lately, Annie has been curious as to what makes a classic a classic. I have had the pleasure of hearing Gloom perform her poetry twice in recent years, and today you will share that pleasure with me as she reads three poems, Sardine Man, Sirens, and Of Course I Loved You, I Spent an Hour Talking About Your Hands. It's worth mentioning that the poems Sardine Man and Sirens were both previously published in Yoke issues 1.1 and 1.2 respectively. Here is Sardine Man. A man delivers door-to-door sardines. The fish are canned and slimy and sleep next to each other like orphans. I want to tell him, Sardine Man, I think I could fall deeply in love with you. I think that I would like for you to wrap your big hairy arms around me and cover my entire face with your calloused palms until I can smell nothing but fish. I think that, if I ever died, I would make sure of one thing. I would send out a note saying, Strip me of my bones and turn me into a jigsaw puzzle for the Sardine Man. Sardine Man would open the box, and his living room would reek of my bone marrow. The smell would seep into his bearskin carpet, his opaque curtains, his wife's hair, He'd discover my bones under packing peanuts, and he would immediately know them as mine. His tears would slide off of my beautiful, beautiful bones. He'd have to swat his golden retriever away when the pup would try to take my tibia astray. 
He would clear the table with a sweep of his madman arms, break all of his finest china. Oh, how those glass daffodils would shatter, and he'd spill me onto the stained tablecloth. I'd be everywhere. He would grab me, every piece of me, and see all that he could hold in his sardine-smelling fingers. Thank you. So this here is Sirens. We found a dead girl at the bottom of my pool, and this was a very beautiful thing. Her hair was bleached from the chlorine and the lemon juice her mother had carefully squeezed into her roots. Old trick your grandma taught me. She saw opportunity. No light for my home and a fence blown open by the wind. She hadn't known. She had swum to the bottom and was pretending to be a mermaid. She liked the way her hair, which she had spent all summer growing out, fanned out around her. My drain liked this too, of course, and it began to suck on her dead ends. If I had been her, I think that I would think of the seventh grade school dance, and how my first kiss had been a boy's best vampire imitation, and how over the next few days I thought hickeys were the world's most pathetic metaphor for passion. Then I would realize that this is a terrible last thought, and I would try really hard to think of something miraculous. My mom used to brush my hair after my bath, and I was happy, wasn't I? And the times I wasn't had meaning, right? And oh, I love him, I love him, I love him. When my family got home from our Labor Day weekend trip, her body was blue and bloated. My father fished it out with the pool net and laid it in the garden. My mother suggested CPR. I realized I knew the girl, had sold her a pair of jeans at the mall. At her funeral, a lot of people said they knew her too. Mothers thought she was heroic for not being their daughter. Boys told stories about how they had looked up her skirt as she climbed the stairs and had fallen deeply in love with her. She had been dating a boy. Well, they had gone on one date. The movie was bad and he had used too much tongue when they kissed. People asked him if he would make a speech at her funeral. He had stood in the back, and had been disappointed when it wasn't an open casket. I think often of her last thoughts. Did the dead girl think she could die? Did she feel beautiful then? Had she wished she had gotten a haircut? Or had she marveled over how those strands reached out and curled like longing arms? This is, of course I loved you, I spent an hour talking about your hands. I laid on your couch on that last night. Being in a bed next to you had felt too much like a joint funeral. I sank deep into the cushions and I watched it start snowing. There was a car on the street that wasn't supposed to be there. Its headlights reflected against the white. I barely slept that night. I counted the flowers on your wallpaper, and I watched your two cats chase each other through the living room. I tried to listen closely, see if I could hear you breathing through the hallway. I wanted to imagine you were awake too. I felt locked in your home. The streetlights outside taunted me. 
I eyed the digital clock on your microwave, sat next to spices and an unfinished beer can. I had an exact amount of time to think about fate and make sense of endings. When you came to use the washroom, I pretended I was sleeping. I heard you use the toilet. The stream of your piss is the only intimacy you would allow. After, I heard the creak of your floor. You moved to the linen closet, and then you put a blanket over me. Remember? My eyes were closed. I remember I felt you hovering. I considered offering to make you dinner, right there at 3 a.m. I've been thinking about how nice it would feel to run my brain under cool water, wash it carefully in a sink, massage it with my fingertips, check it for rot and dirty bits. If there are any, I'll take them off with the end of my nails. I'll put my brain on a cutting board and chop it up real nice. Dice it. Be careful not to slice my thumb. There's a way to season a brain perfectly, but it's disputed among cultures. I would ask you how you would like it cooked. You would say, rare. When we first met, we discussed if it's possible to meditate while cooking. You said that it is an activity rooted in meditation. I said I was worried about falling asleep with the stovetop on. I want to serve you my brain on a platter, and I want you to tell me how good it is. Maybe we can have some wine. A deep red. You recently became friends with a boy who has a sommelier for a father. So now you swirl the drink, watch it spiral afterward, stick your nose in the glass as if you have never been taught how to breathe. I'll mimic you so that I am enlightened. We would talk a little bit then, there at 3 a.m. We have time for that. I still have a little bit more I'd like to say. I kept my eyes shut, however. I prayed that I was a beautiful sleeper. I listened to you creak back into your room, move into your own bed, so big and so wide. The cats followed you. Momentarily, I wished I was a baby so I could shamelessly cry out for you. I had wanted to make a point of staying awake the whole night. I would spite you with my exhausted eyes, but I did not. I had a few strange dreams. Bloom's poems are delightful, quietly contained in scenes that feel tangible and present, before being blown open by a subtle but absurd idea that multiplies the poem's possible entry points. So where do we begin? The meanings in Gloom's poetry live in the conversations between the real and the abstract. There are multiple themes that are present in all three of her poems, from feminist perspectives on girlhood to anatomy and an acute desire for physical and cerebral love. Sardine Man begins with a striking comparison between sardines in a can being delivered door-to-door and orphans. We're immediately drawn into the theme of the absent father figure that drives the poem's central direction. The narrator wants to tell the sardine man, quote, I could fall deeply in love with you. But the quotation marks stop there, and everything after, the wanting to be wrapped by his arms, having their face covered entirely by the man's palms, is outside of quotation marks as if there is a division between what is said 
and what is thought, what is unsaid. The description of the narrator's body being covered and wrapped by the sardine man transmits a deep desire for bodily contact, affection, the giving up of one's body to the other. This image is continued in the next stanzas, as Gloom's narrator wishes to, upon their death, be stripped of their bones and turned into a jigsaw puzzle. Since Gloom writes from the perspective of a woman, it's hard to read this passage without thinking of the female body being reduced to its parts, its bones, for the other, the man in this case, to piece together, to build in his image. Just as the sardine man's smell of fish overcomes the narrator, here the image is flipped, and it's the smell of the narrator's bone marrow that would permeate the sardine man's living room. By now it's become evident that the sardine man is the narrator's father, which Gloom confirms to me. Uh, it is about my father, uh, or maybe not specifically my dad, but I mean I'm the writer and I was the one writing it, so mm -hmm. that sentiment comes from me. Um, essentially it's about, you know, someone who is supposed to care for you just not showing up in that way. Everything in the sardine man's life belongs to him, his bearskin carpet, his opaque curtains, his wife's hair. Nothing belongs to the narrator but her body. The image of the sardine man's life is also one of idealism. He has a luxurious living room, a wife, note, not the narrator's mother, and a golden retriever. The narrator's bones intrude on this world and are everywhere, causing the sardine man to enter a fit of destruction. But Gloom decides to end the poem with a warming image of the man holding every bone in his hands. Sardine Man reminds me of a cubist work of art, an observation of the body, but not quite the physical body. The images Gloom uses in Sardine Man are detections of the narrator's interior body, the psyche. What happens to the narrator's physical body, the being deboned, is actually what happens to their mind. It's a tool that Gloom uses in her two other poems as well. It's definitely what I'm trying to do with my poems, like taking these real experiences and just distorting them. I'm very much like into this idea of distortion, mm -hmm. which is very much plays a role in photography paintings. Now, cubism is an artistic movement that started in the early 20th century, its chief pillars being the likes of Picasso or Dali or Paul Cezanne. Cubism is also said to have influenced modernist writing as well, with Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, and William Faulkner, to name just a few, writing stories on the human interior, deconstructing the individual through experiments in style, such as stream of consciousness or multiple perspectives. In Sardine Man and her two other poems, Gloom takes on Cubism with an absurd eye, borrowing from the main elements of Cubist art, the fragmentation of the individual, or the individual as an assemblage of broken images. While Sardine Man focuses on bones, sirens centers on the hair of a dead girl. We found a dead girl at the bottom of my pool, and this was a very beautiful thing. Her hair was bleached from the chlorine and the lemon juice her mother had carefully squeezed into her roots. Old trick your grandma taught me. The symbol of hair has its roots 
no pun intended, in femininity, as a staple of the female body. The hair is immediately tied to a matriarchal image in Sirens, that of a mother sharing with her daughter an old trick that she herself learned from her own mother. The symbol of the hair gains weight. It becomes a generational quality, a feature that is tended to and cared for. This hair, it turns out, is exactly what contributes to the girl's death. She drowns in the narrator's pool, her hair having been sucked into the drain. She saw opportunity. The word opportunity is not gratuitous. For a woman, for a young girl, pursuing an opportunity in the world can lead to scrutiny, mistreatment, or alienation from that very world. That's because most opportunities reserved for women and the lack thereof, in the patriarchal hegemony relate to the woman's body, whether that's sex appeal or pregnancy. In this case, the symbolic opportunity, pretending to be a mermaid and swimming in the neighbor's pool, is deadly. In the third stanza, the poem shifts subtly, from the girl to the narrator's recognition of the self in the dead girl. If I had been her, I think that I would think of... What follows is a series of images surrounding the narrator's life, her first kiss and hickeys, her mother brushing her hair, love for an unidentified him. This recognition touches on the qualities of female friendship that Erin Wonker, in her book Notes from a Feminist Killjoy, touches on. Wonker says of female friendship that, quote, Sometimes witnessing someone else navigating the barrage of damage that patriarchal culture heaps on her while trying to navigate your own way is so very hard. Perhaps a drift happens when one friend in the equation has broken free from some binding narrative of patriarchal normativity, and that freedom or restlessness becomes too much for the other. End quote. Here, Wonker speaks mostly of the toxicity in common depictions of female friendships. But in Sirens, the opposite happens. The dead girl acts as a mirror for the narrator to observe her own position in a patriarchal culture, that of being kissed, of tending to her hair, and of loving him. The narrator witnesses a girl who has broken free from patriarchal normativity by being killed by it and she sees herself in that very girl. A bond is created, a recognition of how the patriarchal society affects women and girls as a collective. As Sirens continues, Gloom touches on other images where the dead girl is sexualized and objectified by society. Boys looking up her skirt, kissing her badly, and then being disappointed at the closed casket funeral. Their one last chance to see her, to own her with the male gaze, denied. The asserted images of sirens give way, in the last stanza, to a string of questions surrounding beauty, as defined by the girl's hair. That these questions on the girl's final thoughts remain unanswered were left trapped in a poem without an exit point, which mirrors how the girl and narrator are both trapped throughout sirens by the physical experience of girlhood. The hair, the last image in Sirens, acts as a symbol of what Judith Butler calls the performative act of gender, of bodily standards imposed on women and girls alike, 
According to Butler, gender is an illusion we come to believe through social temporality. Repeat intentional choices that constitute meaning. The girl's hair grants her two things, a generational attachment to her mother and grandmother and the attention of society of boys who, as if lured by a siren, fall deeply in love with her while looking up her skirt. Ultimately, though, it also kills her. Me being a woman comes out very much in my poems. And I, you, we could definitely ask the question, like, well, does a man's manhood come through in his poems? And I think it's like, well, that depends. Like, that's a choice for male writers. Where woman writers, there's always the... Um, or I think anyone who's just, like, not a cis male writer, there's then, like, an ultimate fixation on who the poet is and why they're writing this way and how does their femininity come out this way, which is then interesting because it's, like, very much when I am writing, I am writing about femininity and girlhood and womanhood. Of course I loved you. I spent an hour talking about your hands. First is an incredible title, and second, it reads almost like a stream-of-consciousness series of strange dreams, to borrow Gloom's language. The narrator is obviously locked, trapped in this living room at night, thinking about fate and endings, with a you hovering around the room and her thoughts. The piece's central image revolves around the narrator preparing and cooking her brain as a meal for you, and the lines Gloom writes around this image are among her most striking and her best. Not only is the female body once again objectified and taken apart, it is also checked and cleaned of its rot and dirty bits. As the narrator prepares the brain, she symbolically chops it up, releasing the memories of a failed relationship she now sits in the shadow of. They talk about cooking as meditation, and the narrator, in a striking line, mimics the you. I'll mimic you so that I am enlightened. The idea that female enlightenment comes from mimicry is one deeply ingrained in patriarchal hegemony. It's an idea tied to the objectification of the female body by the male gaze. What bleeds through the poetry here is the reality that women face daily, that male approval necessitates abandoning features of the genuine self and putting forth a performance, an identity in the man's image. Bargaining for male approval is a theme in all three of Gloom's poems. In Sardine Man, the narrator bargains for the attention and love of a father figure by gifting him her bones. In Sirens, the dead girl and narrator seek recognition from boys by offering their attempts at a perfect body. In Of Course I Loved You, the narrator bargains with her brain, but not her intelligence and her thoughts, rather her physical, chopped-up brain. Gloom ends the poem with the same stream-of-consciousness tone, praying that she is a beautiful sleeper, incorporating the idea of bodily beauty once again. And she falls asleep to a few strange dreams. Strange dreams. That's the precise term I would use to define Gloom's poetry to a stranger. Her poems read like strange dreams on girlhood and the body, on learning and defying the conditions of patriarchy, on desiring love and on the cost of receiving that love. The themes of Gloom's poetry and the way in which she writes her poems 
touch on feminist thinker Hélène Cizou's idea of writing the body. In her essay, The Laugh of the Medusa, which I can't recommend enough, Cizou asks that the woman, quote, write yourself. Your body must be heard. Only then will the immense resources of the unconscious spring forth. To write, an act that will not only realize the decensored relation of women to her sexuality, to her womanly being, giving her access to her native strength, it will also give her back her goods, her pleasures, her organs, her immense bodily territories, which have been kept under seal. End quote. According to Sisu, writing the self, writing the female body, is twofold. First, quote, by writing herself, woman will return to the body which has been more than confiscated from her, which has been turned into the uncanny stranger on display, the ailing or dead figure, end quote. Think here of the narrator in Sirens, writing herself into the poem after encountering the dead figure of the girl. And secondly, writing is, quote, an act that will also be marked by woman's seizing the occasion to speak, hence her shattering entry into history, which has always been based on her suppression. This writing of the body is exactly what Gloom accomplishes in her three poems here not only by incorporating the physical body as a central direction in the poems, but also by writing about how the body, as a symbol, is treated and affected by the patriarchal world it inhabits. Just the concept of human bodies, they're weird looking, they're strange, they're awkward, and that they're apparently meant to like fit so well with each other. Like, Have you ever just thought about like the concept of kissing? That is so strange. Gloom also writes vertically, as Sidonie Smith would say. She writes in a nonlinear way that disregards, for the most part, a structure of time and space. Her poems shift from one area, one perspective, to the next without warning, freely, like strange dreams. The writing is vertical rather than horizontal, and thus goes against typical patriarchal linearity creating a literary space for the female perspective to exist and flourish. The way in which Gloom's poems are interrupted by these absurd images and progressions, the bones being stripped, the brain being cooked, mirrors what Aaron Wunker calls acts of interruption, acts of being a feminist killjoy. In this way, Gloom's poems embody a feminist denial of patriarchal structures, she presents a scene where a female character attempts to maneuver the patriarchy and then interrupts it by diving into the psychology of girlhood and the constructions of a female self, and by giving voice to that self. The new self that emerges at times in these poems, such as the collection of bones, the thoughtful and self-aware narrator in Sirens, or the reflective narrator of Of Course I Loved You, relate to what the feminist collective radical lesbians might call woman-identified. That is to say, the self that emerges is a self that is determined by the woman herself, rather than by the man. It is a self that is one step closer to outright denying the framework of patriarchy, and in this way, Gloom's poems 
are acts of feminism themselves. But they are also intimate observations on femininity and the questions of growing up as a young woman. The poetry is straightforward and beautiful, at times visually striking enough to make one reread a line a few times. The themes and ideas are contemporary and genuine. Gloom asks significant questions without raising too many eyebrows, and that's perhaps her best poetic quality. Her poems Sardine Man, Sirens, and Of Course I Loved You are honest articulations on girlhood that rest on the heart of female experience. These are sincere poems written with a unique voice and powerful images, with Gloom not quite screaming in defiance of patriarchal culture, but quietly portraying its effects and, like her characters who are deboned, debrained, and killed, disembodying its narratives. I would like to thank Annie Gloom for her enthusiasm to participate and be my poetic guinea pig for parting words. And I would also like to thank Dr. Linda Mora, whose course on feminist literature provided a fair chunk of the theory used in this episode, as well as the motivation to create parting words. I would also like to thank the 15-year-old me who decided to spend a lot of money on audio recording gear without whom it would have been impossible to record this podcast with such ease nine years later. And, of course, I would like to thank the listeners for your attention. The plan with Parting Words is to publish monthly episodes throughout the year, so stay tuned for more emerging Canadian literature in the near future when Parting Words returns. Thank you.